So the occasion for a few questions. First question is asking how to deal with strong floods of Sankara. They make it hard to stay grounded. There's a lot of stress externally with situations with my kids where the identity of mum is involved. At times, trying to come up with ways to save my kids. How do I keep my ground in my own practice when that identity comes through? It seems almost biological. How to deal with strong floods of Sankara? So, for those who are not familiar with this piece of language, Sankara, <laughs> it can cover a number of things, but primarily it means this quality like of uh, an energy that, that has an impulse to it, like getting activated, getting triggered. So an emotional sankhari, getting a lot of emotional energy rushing through with certain compulsive um, programs, you fix, make, change, hold on, be good, you know, this is, this is activating energy, this is sankhara. So when there's a strong floods, makes it difficult to stay grounded. A person feels themselves perhaps uh, unable to maintain a clear uh, focus or clear balance. These powerful energies moving through. How do I keep my ground in my own practice when that identity comes through? It seems almost biological. Well, it is biological, mm-hmm. mm, at least to a degree. I mean, that's what mothering's about. It's a biological condition which uh, activates certain emotional programs. Otherwise, we wouldn't have survived, probably. Yeah, with deep attention, a lot of care and concern, a lot of focus on the welfare of the little one. Mm. So that's there. Being a program switched on, the emotional floods, it, it, it tends to follow its program, which is to protect, cultivate, encourage, uh, feed, nourish the uh, offspring. And whether the offspring need it or want it or not. And sometimes this can occur when the offspring is 45 years old and the mother is still having those same programs, those same attitudes. So it's not self, it's a, it's a program. And um, naturally anything that's intimate and it is, becomes a pattern, a repeated program, is intimate, and particularly if it involves the emotions, seems like me, feels like me, because all, my, all the energies run in that direction. So the, my energies, heart energies, are running that direction. One very much identifies, or is a strong identification with these heart energies, these sankharas, these, uh, these emotional programs and patterns. And so that's not wrong, that's just what happens. 
So just understanding it as that rather than as a person. So then the identity comes forth of being the mother, which is again all part of the program. So one has to sort of be aware of that mother and recognizing actually it's it's more like a like a program that affects everything what the person gives attention to and what they're interested in and what their concerns are. So you witness this not as an identity but as as these various psychologies and uh, inclinations so you can you know be aware of those and uh, they serve a purpose mm. so you just manage it as best you can uh, because although it serves a purpose it's it, the emotional program is fine but it's not necessarily always accurate because it says things like to save my kids that's a very powerful phrase and of course that's part of the program the mother will give her life to save the children and yet also recognize um, do you save them save them from what suffering aging sickness death I don't think so so the urge is there but the uh, program is not um, (laughs) you know it's not accurate on the details in a sense well they have to contemplate it and uh, keep recognising you know what about these kids? You've got two, maybe or three, how many you have. What actually happens for them? And what um, supports their growth into being autonomous? Uh, what supports their growth? Since you are subject to ageing, sickness, death, what supports their growth when you're gone? To what extent there's a phase in which the mothering is very much uh, um, necessary as a kind of a biological fact, and it becomes more an emotional support and a modelling, and then it, you know it's got to change in accordance with the disposition of the children. So that's that's the learning process, isn't it? And you can kind of contemplate your identity changing because it's still a relationship. And the relationship has to allow both parties to be changeable. And of course, with the children, as they're growing and changing, when do they need mother? When do they need space? When do they need... Intense care, where do they need you to be step back a bit? Um, so you have to work with that, uh, that that relationship. And there's a lot that can be learned about uh, the identity. Identity should is not a fixed thing. 
shouldn't be a fixed thing. You know, it's something that is relevant in accordance with the conditions that support it. So, you know, you know identity of mother, well, there can be the need to be caring when care is needed. Rather than the fixed identity whereby you see these two, three people permanently as children who need your constant care. And that could be that could be confining for them. Now I don't know, I don't know how old they are, but uh, there's always just a moderating relationship. And if we look into the, uh, for example, the four Brahma-vihara, four qualities of goodwill, kindness, compassion, gladness and equanimity. And sometimes the images, a set of images that are used to describe these are quite... Um, appropriate to to contemplate. One is the mother, uh, metta, goodwill, the mother is actually, uh, you know, feeding the child, so really right there, not bringing her energy, her body, into the child's presence to suckle it, and so forth. That's the first image, feeding, it's metta. And so mothers do that. At a certain point they don't need to do that, you know, the child is is weaned, you know. And but still, they still have goodwill, but then it's also a sense of compassion, which means that the mother is watching over the child to make sure the child is only three years old, it could get hurt, so he's watchful, keeping a vigilant eye to make sure they don't have accidents or burn themselves. Compassion. Mm-hmm. And that's also part of it. And then there's a time when the child is now 18 years old or so, they're quite strong and vigorous, learning things and then as a parent the mother is appreciative glad oh my child is now a young person they are they are they're intelligent they're creative they have wit they are strong they are capable i am so glad i'm appreciating their strength there's a sense in which there's a lot more autonomy being granted you know allowing the person to express and take their own form and rejoice in it. The last one is equanimity, whereby the, the, the child can move out, form their own life, you know, not be living with the parent, and go through their own growth process, ups and downs, accidents and joys, and the parent remains accepting of all of it. <laughs> Equanimous, but no, doesn't mean indifferent, it just means they accept all the changes uh, and a present, emotionally present, but not interfering unless asked. And so there's that growing spaciousness in the relationship, which is important to cultivate. My my sense of that. Okay. So another question: in terms of cultivating qualities of the heart, are these qualities conditioned? in the same way as intellectual abilities or knowledge or physical strength, do qualities of the heart, such as openness, stability, kindness, etc., carry on regardless of physical or mental condition? Or are they conditioned by the body or the mental faculties or anything else? So, very break it down very simply. Qualities of the heart, are they conditioned? by 
qualities of intellect um, or qualities of physicality such as health uh, I guess health um, capacity um, vigor and so forth because these as we recognize the physical qualities can decline they do decline with age or with sickness mental functioning brain qualities can also decline uh, with sickness or with aging so do heart qualities are they dependent upon these bases and the simple answer is um, it depends (laughs) they may start uh, you know like it's good to have some degree of uh, intellectual capacity to be able to uh, consider and reflect on the mind states so you're not in a state of delirium or intoxicated so enough clarity to know what's going on so you're not delirious, intoxicated, psychotic Um, because then the heart isn't able to relate to anything and then um, physical qualities well it's good to have um, if you extreme physical pain it gets very challenging for the heart to to cultivate be cultivated so to some extent they are at least initiated by supportive conditions but bodily and mental conditions but increasingly the, the notion is or the practice is to cultivate them so they're not dependent on the bodily or mental condition that's what liberation is about so even in uh, decline and death the heart remains can remain free that's the big project and of course is what the Buddha exemplified in his last dying moments in fact in, in fact in his dying moments he was answering questions <laughs> and then going into deep samadhi into jhana as he passed away so clearly the heart was quite capable of functioning and even the mental faculties are capable of functioning while the body was breaking up Hmm? now what does condition the heart is uh, karma Hmm? it means intentions and actions that we have participated in so this is the most powerful conditioning force for the heart qualities clarity, openness, stability you name it, all of them they are dependent on good karma or good enough karma (laughs) ideally one's own (laughs) but most of us all rely upon the good karma of other people in other words a good friend, the wise teacher their good heart qualities can nudge, nourish, bring forth our good qualities and so to some extent it's dependent upon karma if you have the good karma to associate with wise people chances are your heart will develop if you don't come into proximity with such beings or such teachings chances are the heart won't develop these are all potentials it doesn't say it won't it just says it's less likely if um, you know you've been or if a person's been uh, prone to 
committing acts of violence, um, deceit, and so forth, much less likely. It's a, it's a tougher journey. Turn it round. Um, but at the same time, it can be almost something that demands that one turn it round. You think, look, if I keep acting like this, I'm really going to be in a jam. I've really got to make a lot of effort to change. So, you know, sometimes people who have been, um, you know, committed lots of moral errors begin to see the error of their ways and it gives them a, an incentive to change if you really get it, you know. And sometimes people who have not been involved in anything that evil or wicked just poot along and don't develop anything at all because there's no 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 urgency to it. Eh, fine, I'm fine, I'm okay. <laughs> they don't develop because there's no no there's no no fire, there's no impetus to do so. So sometimes, you know, people develop because they've had tragic circumstances. You can't say you want people to have tragic circumstances, to have bereavement, loss, um abuse and so forth. You can't say you want it, but sometimes it can be uh, something that a person really is desperate to to bring around change. And, and, you know, so, so some conditions that can be negative in a way. So the suffering, if we say suffering, is the first noble truth. You know? So that is, a, in a way, it's a support condition means we want to get out of this, we want to do something, we're motivated. Yet the really significant feature is there's got to be some quality of non-suffering, such as you suddenly hear the words of a master, you get it, you see it, you see a sign of truth, you see the sign, the beauty of virtue or calm or liberation, in, in the presence of another. This is considered one of the most significant supportive conditions for the heart because we can suffer and think there's nothing you can do about it, just distract yourself. Or we could be experiencing some suffering and see someone who's not suffering or has been through that and has found a way with it and we get this tremendous, what's called um, pasada, which means in sort of faith, trust, and sangvega, which means something like urgency. Sangvega, sangvega, which is like, you know, there's a, there's a fire behind you that you're, you're moving from, and there's a light in front of you you're moving towards. Those are the most potent conditions for the heart to be, you know, shaped, impelled, um, you know, aroused for what needs to be done. So, you know, in some ways, the development of the heart does depend upon conditions, but the conditions it depends upon most fundamentally are heart conditions. The conditions that arouse urgency, the conditions that arouse faith, and the conditions that indicate there's an accessible path I can relate to, I can get hold of. Those are the conditions that support it. And one's karma, obviously most of us it's very mingled, there's good and there's bad, but there's enough there enough good to to know a good thing when you see it. <laughs> yeah. To be clear enough, those with a little dust in their eyes, as the Buddha said. You know, you've got a lot of dust, but well, it seems like a lot, but actually you know a good thing when you see it. And you right. Yeah. Um, and so that that's in accordance with one's karmic potential. Mm. We our inheritance. Yeah. 
And so some people get this quite early. When they're quite young, they begin to sense, no, this isn't right. I need, I, I need more than this. This, is, this deal is not enough. I'm not satisfied with this. And some people get it through unfortunate circumstances, you know, marriage breaks up or they have addiction problems or bereavement or violation and they say, look, you know, this is, this, you've got to really pull yourself together and get going. And, but then, and then there's the sign of something you can hold on to. Dhamma, teaching, good friend is considered to be the fundamental support condition is association with a person of integrity. That's the considered to be the fundamental rock-bottom condition for the arousal and the, the process of liberation. Because if you associate with people of integrity, you're going to get some good dharma somewhere or the other. When you get good dharma, you can pick it up. When you can pick it up and practice it, then you're starting to go. And that's those are the conditions that support it. And then if that's possible, then in fact, you know, things like physical problems are problems, but they're not insurmountable. The heart can, can rise above that. A person has an aged cat who is dying. Cat rejects the medicine the vet offers. The question is asking, should I have the cat put down? Because she seems to suffer a lot. But I've got a feeling maybe I should you know, just um, make her as comfortable as possible and let nature take its course. I think that's a, what she's saying. Yeah, I think I would probably agree with you. <laughs> uh, yeah, because we, you know, ending, ending other creatures' suffering. Hmm. I mean, often it's our own suffering that we're trying to deal with, our suffering of seeing creatures in pain. Um, you know, hmm. People gave us a cat, and I don't really don't recommend having pets at all because it's a it's a fraught relationship on many levels. You know, the the animal is kind of like well, it's not an animal; it's a kind of it's a strange relationship. Um, but we do sometimes get orphaned. Cat, last one we had died. I think she had a tumor. Normally she'd have been put down, but the monks didn't want to do that. And they used to take it in turns. They'd, uh, she was really in a bad shape, you know, just kind of like an old rag, you know, with a little box, and she just slumped down in this box, and one of her eyes was, was gone because the thing was in her brain. And they just kind of put homeopathic drops into the cat's eyes every 15 minutes, somebody looking after the cat, tending to it, and... Uh, until she slipped away, and that was their response to it. Took a lot of attention, but that's what they did. Of course, in the wild, the cat wouldn't have got to that condition. A fox would have eaten it. So this is the problem when you take on responsibility for another creature's life. You, in a way, you take it out of the field in which it would normally exist. You know, which nature would do what nature does, but we've kind of taken it out of that. We've made it a semi-human being, a surrogate human being. And then it gets really difficult because, as with human beings, you could keep them going much longer uh, through artificial means than, than would occur 
if we were left to nature and we, we want to do that for each other and so when you're taking on a, a life of an animal then you should consider this quite carefully what will you be doing when the animal is is in pain and dying you know, and can you look into your own heart and see you know what are my responses what's happening for me you know can I deal with those yeah. Kind of become more compassionate and equanimous. Yeah. What what's my level of intrusion or what's my level of how much do I put into this process? I'd certainly suggest making the animal comfortable as possible. But if the animal's rejecting medicine, probably the animal's doing what it's cats are pretty savvy. Then when they get round to dying, they generally decide, okay, enough eating, enough drinking. And they often they just disappear and go and lie under a bush somewhere. They just shut it down. <laughs> you know, most, most of our cats have done that. They just just decide to pack up <laughs> and, you know, they, they just stop. <laughs> Had enough. So I think I would trust the cat personally and follow that line. What would be a sequence for a daily meditation practice? Mm -hmm. I would like to know the chanting for a lonely practice too, the three refuges. Well, I think it's good to, to begin and end the days at least with some meditation. So you begin the day with a sense of before, before the daily round gets going. You're know, sort of, okay, for a freshen up, prepare yourself. So it's like, washing yourself. You may begin the day with a wash, so you're freshened up for the day, wash your body, also wash your mind, so it's in good condition. Bring it up, bring, remember when meditating, we're trying to cultivate qualities such as resilience, patience, clarity, yeah, and so that's an important exercise, just like any other exercise, to get you in good shape. And so, you know, you should, I think, recommend begin a day like that. Also end a day with some meditation, so you get a chance to review and recollect what did you learn today, how are things going, is there something you need to learn from today that you need to put down or pick up or make more of or make less of, so wisely reflect. And also, is the day finished? Let it finish. If you're going to sleep, you should recollect that you might die in your sleep you know, so that you really finish ideally finish your business with the day at the end of the day yeah. and uh, so I think that's an important thing to do it's probably good from time to time to do retreats to sort of top up and deepen and uh, enrich your meditation practice uh, and that necessarily that will generally bring you into contact with other people who practice or centres the practice, and that's all very strengthening, and it creates a sense of, you know, community and belonging, and uh, kind of a dialogue. And this is all very enriching if you can join in with other people. And the themes are generally to do with, uh, you know, wisdom, uh, embodiment, uh, heart qualities, loving kindness, and so forth. Chanting for a lonely practice. I suppose you mean the solitary practice, three refuges. They're always good to um, 
determine, like a, a kind of orientation, you know, this is what I'm about. Refuge's precepts, um, the little chanting book that we've given out, the qualities of Metta Sutta. So learn a few that you get familiar with that, that work for you. The five subjects for frequent recollection. I am of the nature to age, sicken, die. <laughs> All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will be separated from me. I am heir to my karma, born of my karma, and so forth. And so this gives you a sense of urgency and uh, keeps the motivation going. So the chanting can be like daily reminders that help to take you to deeper places than just the flow of the media circumstances, you know, with the current level of activities going on in global sphere that you're not really, you're just an onlooker to. We do a lot of that, you know, on looking, things that really don't, are not intimate, not connected to your own welfare. So that's always good to cultivate internal looking rather than external looking. Books and readings, well, what would you recommend? There's a range. Would you recommend yours or other authors? Well, the books I write work for me, otherwise I wouldn't write them. <laughs> but whether they work for anybody else, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's good to have a, a range of people who've got different voices and different angles. And generally, when you're looking at in this literature, there's a huge amount of literature. You should look at things like it's the person trying to promote themselves. <laughs> You don't really want to do that. If you look at the outside of a book and it's all promoting how wonderful the author is, I think, hmm, not about that. You know, what's, what's, what's the gimmick? What's the advertisement here? Uh, because, uh, yeah, you know, what's the integrity of the person? You can't tell from the book immediately. And really it's the integrity of the person that's very important. Um, and so you may guess if the book's free distribution book and the person's you know not making a big claim there's probably that's probably a person of integrity but it's not to say that commercial books aren't of integrity just that's often the way that books have to get printed these days and some very useful books are printed commercially but as i said you know ideally books are great but uh, more important is um, living beings and meeting living beings and use use the books as a as an occasional reminder or you know, studying and then you've got to work out between what the book says what works for you and what people you trust the advice of people you trust so you've got three sources one the text another source people you respect and trust what they say and do Third source, what works for your own mind. When these three come together, you've probably got a pretty good uh, guide. Words Dharma, Dharma with an R and Dhamma with an M referred to, are they the same thing or what? Dharma is the Sanskrit um, and Dhamma is the Pali. So Buddhism is primarily transmitted from the Indian source. It's an Indian-based religion from either the Sanskrit language, which was the, the classical 
sacred language of India. And in that language, the word dharma with an R is used. But the original Buddhist texts, the original ones, were, were done in Pali language, which was more vernacular. You know, not a classical sacred language, but a vernacular language. And the Buddha felt it's more appropriate to use a vernacular language because he was like, this is the people of the ordinary people. So he said, use the, use the ordinary language. So a lot of the scriptures are written in Pali language. And it depends. So by and large, the, the Sanskrit was used when Buddhism became a little more literary, which was after you know, 2nd century BC, it became more established and literary. Um, so then they used Dharma, they used Dharma to translate, because they wanted to make this, this going to be classical literature now. So they used Dharma. But the early texts are written in, are done in Pali, which uses Dhamma. Can we use the five indriyas to solve the five hindrances? Yes. In fact, they are the five hindrances are your sparring partners in cultivating the five indriya. If you don't cultivate the five indriya, a hindrance will sock you in the eye or punch you in the gut. (laughs) So so you've got to... Faith helps to quell doubt. Mindfulness supervises all of it. You know, energy gets rid of restlessness and dullness, uh, balanced energy. Deep cultivation of all of them, samadhi liberates you from your will. So all these, and wisdom, uh, so all these mingle together, deal with the hindrances. Person experiencing a band of pain around the back when standing and sitting, they followed the band that goes on and on around the body. Any suggestions? how to work with it. Try to focus on an area of your body that's not in pain and as you focus on it, get a feeling for what happens in your heart and mind. As you notice somewhere that's quite comfortable, what happens to your heart and mind? What's the kind of tonality of it? Probably quite open and relaxed, I would imagine. Now, now you move to the painful area, what happens to your heart? It starts to maybe get tense, agitated, what can I do about this? Right? Now when you go back to the comfortable area, you don't go, oh what should I do about this? How can I deal with this non-pain? My legs are in a lot of non-pain. <laughs> How can I deal with it? Mind goes, oh this is okay. And when we go to the painful area, oh how can I deal with it? Now, is it possible to go to the painful area, oh this is a painful area, mm, like this. So just using it, just training the heart to remain constant, constancy. And uh, (laughs) because naturally the reflex is to somehow get rid of the pain somewhere or another. But that puts a mental pressure onto the physical condition. And... um, that mental pressure may be a contributory factor to why the pain doesn't dissolve, doesn't move on. Now, if it's a pain to do with, say, somatic or energetic imbalances, then it's very important the mind remains open, interested, sympathetic, but does not 
try to change things. So it's we're creating space, an empathic space, an empathetic space for conditions to arise and move on. So in that way we listen to the pain. What's it what's it feel like? Is it angry pain? Is it sad pain? Is it fighting pain? Is it contracted pain? Is it what's the tonality of it? What does it want to do? Widen your widen your deepen your heart around that. Also contemplate if you have a band running around your body, say widen your attention from the painful area to include the non-painful area. By doing that you are generating the potential for the pain, the energy of the pain to move because you're keeping a wide focus and practice, you know, what is this pain going to teach me about equanimity and about openness and about compassion and and investigation. And this is something we're going to be with for a lifetime, physical pain. And you're not going to get away from it. So, okay, let's do out do the learning. This one may go, but another one will come in its place. So what's the proper learning process? And I would suggest that some pains will disappear, some will probably move very slowly, um, some will be having a certain emotional condition. So a lot of um, traumatic or, or emotional abuse is transferred to the body. Shock, grief, abuse on a physical or psychological basis is transferred to the body. The body retains those impressions. So sometimes when the pain is coming to the surface, it's a sign that these these somatic bruises are coming up to the surface. And if we're patient, open and listen, they may very well express themselves and move on. But do also retain that fundamental stability so you don't go into the painful area. You have a fundamental stable axis, I'm calling the spinal axis or the upright axis or your calm center, where you you stand, if you like, place yourself and then you open towards the discomfort with that quality of an open, inquiring, sympathetic mind and see what emotions particularly can be will arise in that relationship. In terms of attachment, this is a term used in relation to childhood development referring to a bond between parent and child. It has been shown that without a healthy attachment a child can suffer and is can continue to adulthood. I also hear the term used in Buddhism where we're encouraged to not be attached. In adult healthy relationships, attachment is a term which comes up. As adults, how do we know when it is okay to have an attachment or not? Well, yeah, the English word here is being used in two different contexts. So, in the first context, attachment referring to the necessary bond between parent and child. Um, Absolutely correct. Just because the child has been born child is not actually separate yet really you know they're still part of the of the parents 
child doesn't have a separate psychology, you know, it's still very much part of the parent. So it has to be just like you don't cut your leg off. <laughs> the child is part of the parent, even though it looks like it's separate, it's not. And it's not separate for several years, and it, it gradually separates. And then the child dis- more or less decides for itself when it can move out into autonomy. So then the attachment is subsides or is no longer of the same nature and is can be dissolved. And that's development theory and development wisdom. Now you also hear this word attachment in Buddhism, but it's a different concept. Um, so that's why you, you know, because you, you're dealing with translation of maybe one or two things. One is um, viveka, which means disengagement, which is a sense of keeping things in perspective. You're generally withdrawing your attention from unskillful objects. So in other words, you're not attached to sights and sounds. You, you can notice them, but you're able to gently withdraw your attention from them. So you can focus on what's important. Without that, we'd go crazy. <laughs> so it's a different, different frame of reference. Because you have a stable center. Now the idea of the child relationship is this encourages the attachment there encourages the little one to feel welcomed and steady and comfortable and okay and worthy and therefore they within that holding pattern a center their own center begins to develop in the right way now with viveka it's based upon the understanding that you have a a center already (laughs) you know and you can return to it Mm. so so you you let go because you've got something to return to Mm. because you have had some parental bonding so it's enabled you to feel a centre. Of course, for most people, the centre's not complete. It's kind of frayed. It's not completely there all the time. But gradually, you withdraw attention from what's unskillful and let yourself dwell in the skillful. And gradually, your centre will strengthen and build up. That's the fundamental bit. Yeah? When I'm saying centre, I could mean your composure, your your heart, your... I don't know how else to put it really, but your that groundedness, inner stability. First it's partial, but then the more you cultivate, the inner stability becomes stronger and you can let go of you know sight sounds, even you know, even physical discomfort you can withdraw from, you know, because you've got somewhere to go and you feel very steady and comfortable. That's a different different experience. See, because with the parental attachment thing, a child is completely, you know, passive. The child doesn't decide to be attached or not. It's just, it, 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 that's the bond. But the idea is for the adult is when they have developed, they can determine, okay, now I have enough of that. This is not doing, this is not necessary. I withdraw from that. I'm no longer engaged with the television or the sport or the whatever. So it's very much decided and voluntary. There's an autonomous agent doing that for themselves. 
And so the other word attachment sometimes used is called upadana, or clinging. And clinging is a kind of, almost a pathology of a mechanism that occurs when we don't feel stable. So we hang on. Don't feel stable independently, therefore I hang on to my creature comforts or I hang on to my my phone or something because I feel I need stimulation, I don't feel comfortable without stimulation. So there's a clinging. And clinging is a kind of mechanism. It's not a decision. Now it's often giving a pretty useful readout on, on your instability. <laughs> so, okay, I, I do feel I need a lot of this, that and the other. Hmm. It's clinging. Okay. Now, I, you know, noticing that, that I, I can't spend a day without watching television, as I feel really weird and uncomfortable and restless, I, know, I need to develop some strengths internally so I can withdraw from that. So rather than clinging being a kind of accusation, you, should, you shouldn't cling, you should stop clinging, which is like saying stop, you know, stop feeling uncomfortable with pain. It's just a natural feature. Yeah. But it's a wake-up call because the sense is if you're, you can't get through the day without watching television, can't get through the week without having a pint of beer or something, that's a very dependent condition. Uh, what's needed? What's needed is maybe more, more comfort, more strength internally. So it encourages you to develop the strengths that enable you to disengage from conditions that essentially are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and um, limit you. So that's, that's the Buddhist take on on how this word is used in the Buddhist context. We notice where the attachment is, where that reflex of clinging is, and it reminds us, hmm, this will go one day. Okay, what do you need? Most of us need stability. Well, you're not going to find it in that. So let's cultivate practice for stability. We need warmth, we need food, we need nourishment of some kind, we need heart food. Yeah, we're going to get so much from watching television. Yeah. So if you need it, develop it here so you don't need it out there. And that gives you, uh, that means you really, really, really fully grow up as an, in, as an autonomous being. But it's, you know, this is something that we, we are encouraged to undertake. So, you know, it's not healthy or unhealthy, it's just the recognition of I'm not there yet. Something has to be completed before I can let that one go. Okay, um, this of course can be a very large topic, but that's certainly that's enough of this uh, Q&A session for today.